My guest today is Micah Redding. Micah is the executive director of the Christian Transhumanist Association. He's given TED Talks. He's been featured in the Huffington Post, Slate, Christianity Today, Wired, and many other publications. What is transhumanism? Well, you're about to find out in today's fun discussion with Micah Redding. I'm joined today by Micah Redding. Micah is the executive director of the Christian Transhumanist Association. And perhaps when you hear the word transhumanism, you might be thinking, does this have something to do with questions about human sexuality or any of that? And no, it doesn't. I mean, maybe it does come up at some point, but um, I'm interested to talk to Micah today as the director of something that I think many Christians would not associate the word Christian and transhumanism if they knew what that meant to begin with. But then there's probably many people, like when I told my wife I was doing this interview, she's like, what's what's transhumanism? So, Micah, do you think you could give us maybe a, a definition of what transhumanism is and, and maybe explain a little bit how p- different people might use that word to mean different things? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the in the broadest sense, transhumanism is a movement to use science and technology to transform the human condition. And um, so that evokes a lot of questions. Uh, one of the questions is that I get a lot is, isn't everybody a transhumanist then? Aren't we all doing that? And um, I think uh, implicitly, most of us are. Most of us uh, agree with the use of science and technology to transform the human condition in some way. And so the question is, okay, how far do we take that? What direction do we take that in? Um, you know, things like that. Now, there's uh, a lot of questions I get uh, about when we talk about transforming the human condition and some of the ways that that term, has, that transhumanism has been used philosophically. There's a question of, are we talking about leaving the human condition behind? Um, or are we talking about kind of raising it to new levels? And um, the term is used in both of those ways. Um, and so uh, you'll sometimes hear in the philosophical discussions talk about, you know, the human, the transhuman, and the posthuman, as if we're on kind of a journey to something else. Yeah, like an evolutionary progression, right? Yeah, and maybe there's something that's coming after us. Uh, but you'll also hear people talk about um, the human condition as fundamentally transhumanist. So Jason Silva, who's a secular transhumanist, talks about to be human is to be transhuman. That is to say that we are always in a process of transformation. We are always kind of rooted in something that's transcendent to us. And so we're always kind of in this transformative motion. And so, um, yeah, so that's the kind of, that's what these, these terms kind of get used as and what they mean. And so it can mean a lot of good things that are either bad or good or all kinds of places in between. Hmm. So as you've, I mean, this is a really unique area for someone to be invested in and involved in, to be giving their their life to. What was it about perhaps your your own journey of faith or perhaps in just an interest in this area of science, technology, and the, the maximization of human potential, or perhaps even, maybe it's not even so much that for you. Maybe it's 
approaching it from a, a matter of care for creation or a care for human persons that are experiencing suffering. Tell us a little bit about your journey of faith and, and why this became an area of passion for you. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I grew up as a preacher's kid in the Churches of Christ, which is a fairly small, kind of conservative, uh, typically fundamentalist group. Um, and so we uh, we were at churches all over the United States, um, from West Virginia to Washington State, which is a very different cultural situation. And so I kind of was exposed to a lot of different um, you know, ways of kind of doing conservative church culture. And, um, and, but one of the things that I really picked up on from my background was this idea that I really had to study for myself, that I had to, um, make my faith my own. And that was the biggest theme that I heard from my Sunday school teachers, from my parents, everything. And so I took that seriously. And um, from a young age, I was really studying a lot of science and technology and philosophy and theology and trying to make all of those kinds of things fit together because I thought that was my job, you know, is to understand um, the world and um, to understand how faith fits in it. And from uh, the time I was a young teenager, I started to wonder, you know, am I going to become an atheist? Because everybody who was reading these kinds of things that I was reading um, seemed to end up being an atheist, you know, and they talked about kind of their experience of of losing faith, of kind of staring into the chasm, you know, something like that. And, um, and so I, you know, I was really, I was wondering, you know, is there, is there a way in which I don't become an atheist in, in this process of studying all these things? And, um, and I think a kind of light bulb for me went off when through the work of people like C.S. Lewis and later on, you know, the, the, um, like N.T. Wright and G.K. Chesterton, that I kind of encountered this broader Christian idea that actually in the resurrection of Christ, God had been committing himself to the renewal of the created order, right? To saying creation is good. This is God's good creation. He's not going to abandon it. He's not going to leave it behind, but he's actually committing himself to work in it, to renew it, to transform it. And so therefore, this is this is core to the human condition that the human body, the physical world, these things matter. They're not just something we're trying to escape one day. We're not just trying to bide our time until we get out of here. We're actually engaged in this kind of work. And as soon as I realized that, I realized that science and technology had to be a significant part of the Christian faith and the Christian mission because they were part of how we engage the material world, right? They had to be uh, part of it. And so um, for me, I realized, oh, all these things actually are are part of one thing. It's God's intention for the world, for the created order, and for God's future. And around that same time, I started um, encountering secular transhumanist communities online. And this was back in the late 90s. And so they were talking about ideas, futuristic ideas that now are, you know, largely re reality or becoming reality, things like Bitcoin and blockchain and things <laughs> like that, you know, um, self-driving cars, like all this stuff that now is part of our world. Um, they were talking about 
And I realized that for many of them, they were, they were often intensely secular, intensely anti-religious. Um, but for many of them, they had had this encounter with religion where they had seen it as escapist, they had seen it as not interested in transforming the world or making the world better, not interested in the environment, not interested in healing diseases, not interested in these kinds of efforts that to make, you know, to make life in the world better, to address suffering, to address concerns that we have about the climate and the ecosystem and so forth. They knew that religion was escapist and uh, anti-science and anti um, you know, anti-good, really. And, um, and, and what I saw was that for many of them, they had rejected this kind of escapism in Christianity and were looking to find a way to reconnect some of these visions of transcendence and transformation that they had picked up from their faith background in a context in which they could actually do something about it. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I, so for me, it's always been a huge kind of, um, significant thing because I know that they were young people like me going through some of the same kinds of questions. Um, I was able to find the resources that allowed me to reconnect those strands of thought. Um, many people were not. And I think that's true, um, for many people in our culture, not just in these kind of niche futurist communities. Um, but, uh, you know, I, so I, I, I kind of have a, um, a real passion for helping people to connect those things, um, whether they're still Christian and are trying to make sense of the world um, or whether they've left it behind and are maybe looking to see whether faith still has a place somewhere in the world. I'm wondering, as you, you began to develop relationships with people in what is admittedly, I think by your own words, uh, usually a more secular community when it comes to those that are interested in issues relating to transhumanism, futurism, uh, maybe you come across other diverse spiritualities that might mark people that have left traditional religious institutions. Did you discover as you started to interact with these people that in many ways, though they felt like they had to reject the institutional Christian tradition that maybe they thought they knew, were you able to see in them things that you identified and go, hey, I actually think you're affirming certain core theological truths. Like I hear from some people and I, I am not, you know, I have very little familiarity with this world. Um, other than just reading stuff online from time to time. And sometimes I get the sense from people that are really passionate about the, the transformation of the human experience that, that what really motivates them is a desire to ease people's suffering, right? There's a, there's a real hope. Now, there certainly are those that may go into this uh, arena that we're no longer trying to eliminate people's suffering. We're no longer trying to deal with the, the maladies and the, the problem of evil that we experience in the world. And perhaps we're maybe doing some sort of like technological tower of Babel here. But I, I wonder if that is your experience. What were some things that you would affirm in those sorts of uh, technological communities that you go, hey, I actually see this. I see this theological, Christian, rich, historic Christian theological affirmation, but it's just reframed in a different way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So much of it is religious, whether people recognize it or not. And typically they won't recognize it either because 
um, they aren't that familiar with the Christian uh, tradition or because they have they they believe they've rejected it, right? They've left it behind, and so of course it can't still be showing up in the the way of thinking. But um, you do see f- of among various different um, people, among various different groups, this ver- this big interest in addressing human suffering, um, making. Uh, life better. You even get what I call a radical environmentalism. One of the founders of the World Transhumanist Association is uh, David Pierce, and he's a philosopher who um, wants to ease the suffering of the entire biosphere. And the language he uses for this is that the lions should lie down with the lambs, wow. right? Um, and this is this is his vision is that we shouldn't be in a biosphere where. Um, where there's so much suffering and so much pain and so much death between animal species that we could actually use, um, you know, maybe bioengineering or something like this to to um, ease that suffering and to make animal life this incredible experience of pure pleasure. Um, and so that's a really radically ambitious vision. Um, it's it's more audacious than any vision that I've ever heard. Um, but it comes from a real place, uh, which a lot of Christians share, which is to say, you know, maybe evil and death and suffering are not really part of how the world should actually be operating. Um, maybe something should be done. Wow. Okay. So you, this, the pathway for you into being involved in this world was, it was probably some part just natural inclinations, biologically hardwired into you maybe for, for towards the sciences. But it was also, you mentioned exposure to people like C.S. Lewis and N.T. Wright. I think for a lot of people, for me, thinking about these issues actually started with um, popular culture. It started with films, you know, it started with movies that expanded my imagination and got me thinking about things that were beyond what I could think of myself. So, all right, let's, let's throw out a fun question here. We've got, we've got a pretty prolific genre of not just books, but movies and television in this, this sci-fi category. What would you say are the top three movies or TV shows that you'd say, Hey, if you want to get thinking about some of these issues that that relate to the theological and philosophical questions that arise as humans increasingly use science and technology to change the human experience. What's your top three? Yeah, so I think right now for most people, um, it's going to be probably uh, Black Mirror, um, Altered Carbon, uh, which was big last year. And um, there's this new show that's come out called uh, Years and Years. And um, I haven't gotten to dig into it yet, but basically uh, there's a moment um, that a lot of people have talked about where this uh, this uh, person sits down with their parents and says, Mom, Dad, I've got something to tell you. I'm becoming transhuman. And um, and so it's kind of like ex- jumping into these questions of identity and, you know, what we're transforming into and that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, I think a lot of shows that are out right now are all over this. Um, you could go back into uh, a couple different movies that came out in the last you know, several years. Her is a big one. Um, it's about a human falling in love with um, their operating system, and it's Joaquin really- Phoenix, right? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's beautiful and it's it's profound and it really deals with some of these questions from a more emotional and relational side. Um, but it brings up almost, you know, if you if you kind of watch, almost everything that happens in the transhumanist discussions comes up. But instead of being like, ooh, you know, it's a crazy sci-fi thing, it's just kind of like it's part of an unfolding relationship. And um, so I think that's a really uh, great, profound one. Uh, if you want to see, um, I'm, I'm going way beyond the, the three, but uh, that's all right. Uh, there's also um, uh, movies like L- Limitless um, and Lucy, which kind of explore this idea of humans becoming more than they currently are or tapping into their uh, intrinsic potential. Um, and I, I, I would say actually really just the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, it it doesn't use the term transhuman. I forget the DC term, I think, is metahuman. Metahumans, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's those those kinds of terms. But this is what we're actually exploring. Like, what does it look like in a world where some of us might have radically expanded abilities um, and really just the question of, of human uh, power itself. How do we handle that and what does that shape us into? When I think about some of those, I think about whether it's – I've only seen a few episodes of Black Mirror. Some of the – you know, you didn't bring this one up, but I often think of Blade Runner, right? Many of these visions of the future come across as fairly dystopian. Uh, and I would admit even my own initial reaction when I discovered there's a Christian transhumanist association was significant skepticism. And I, I, as I kind of do some internal reflection on that, I wonder if it's holdovers from, you know, maybe all the dispensationalist end times and prophecy watch TV shows and movies that I digested as a kid that, you know, make you suspicious of things like there's going to be the mark of the beast is like a computer chip that's going to be put in your hand or your head and you wouldn't be able to do business with it. And then you see a lot of the, what emerges in the popular psyche, you know, we talked, I talked about, I just finished a series on Christ and culture. And we talked a little bit about, I was using some language from the liberation theologian, Dwight Hopkins, who talks about culture as spirit, aesthetic, and labor. And one of the things I talked about was how, uh, the aesthetic of a culture is, is always uh, it's always subordinate to the spirit, which is the kind of meta narrative. It's the invisible values that people hold to, and those things make themselves manifest in the art. So when I look at things like popular art, and as people are kind of grabbing from these values or the projections of their fears, it seems like so much of the the transhumanist aesthetic is pretty dystopian. Um, I've got maybe my doubts about a Christian transhumanism. What would you say to someone like me or someone that has doubts about like a theological validity for Christians even participating in some sort of transhumanist movement. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, that, that dystopian fear is deep and it, and it has a real reason for it. Um, and we can talk about that. Um, but, um, from a theological standpoint, um, you know, I think we can look from Genesis to revelation, but for me, really, it just all comes down to Genesis one, which is the question of, um, who is God? Who are we? What are we doing? And um, as I read Genesis 1, we have a creative God who is 
expresses um, himself first and foremost as this kind of cultivating creator who calls life forth. You know, he says, let, let the land bring forth vegetation and then sees it and delights in it and names it and blesses it, these kinds of things. And then we come to the culmination of the chapter and it says, okay, I'm going to make a being like myself in my image, and I'm going to call that being to do the same sort of creative work that I've done, cultivating, creating life, calling life forth. And what you see um, over the next several chapters is that God leads humanity through this process, right? Everything that God does in Genesis 1, humans are called to do. And so one of the first things that we have in Genesis 2 is Adam being um, called to name all the animals, right? God named creation in Genesis 1, um, and so now Adam is going to go and name all the creatures in Genesis 2. And um, and so God's kind of leading humanity into this process of like being a child of God, imitating the work of God, learning how to do this work of creating and cultivating life. And one of the first things that that involves is uh, tending and keeping the garden, right? So this is this is a vision of humanity as a scientific and technological species. Their work is to use um, their ingenuity, their creativity to call forth the potential of nature. And from the very beginning, they are called to go into all the world and do this. That's, that's their first thing, fill the earth, right? And so that vision of humanity as this creative creature who calls life forth, calls new things into existence, names and categorizes creation. That's a scientific and technological vision. That's a vision I think we see played out through the entire Christian scripture. Um, and we can talk about some of those other places. But to me, that if all that I had was Genesis 1, I would be a transhumanist. I wondered though, you know, I think maybe this is a point that people wrestle with, whether it's things that they would even label as transhumanism or questions. I remember even in high school when the, you know, there was, uh, I think the first sheep was cloned when I was in high school. And we'd have these debates in high school about, well, if we can clone humans or even clone organs and replace broken organs in our bodies with cloned ones, is that, and here's the phrase that always comes up, is it playing God, right? I think for Christians, there's a, Christians have wrestled with, how to participate in God's renewing work in the world and how much of that renewal of all things is simply uh, what we might consider to be just a sovereign, and I hate using this term supernatural because it, it's as if there's this divide between um, you know, the revelation and reason as if it doesn't all come from God. But yet there is something to this... this um, question of how much of the work of renewal is a work of essentially God's agency that we're just like, wow, that's pretty sweet. God did that. And maybe, you know, we'd say 80-20, like we we synergistically cooperate. You know, you think of like, uh, you know, Peter... Peter and John with the man that was lame at the the gate beautiful in Acts, uh, Acts chapter 3, I believe. And so this man is healed as a result of Peter and John participating in God's intention for reality, right? But what if they walked up to him and were like, hey, we've got an exosuit for you, right? Um, is, is that suddenly like not 
an act of participating in God's renewal, is that somehow humanistic? Um, how do Christians navigate this? Um, I think of my my own father-in-law. My father-in-law is a uh, is a is an engineer, but he's worked specifically on medical devices throughout his career. He's worked on the pacemaker. He was part of like initial patent teams in the pacemaker. Worked on the cochlear implant. A lot of people saw that viral video went around of the the gal hearing for the first time. She had like cool full sleeve tattoos, and she breaks down. He worked on that. Um, he's worked on other things that I go. I wonder if my father-in-law is a transhumanist, but he really feels like for him uh, that he is he is really doing God's work in the world. And I can't say no, he isn't just because he's not laying hands on a sick person and recovering. But yet, is there a line where it goes too far? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and in, I think it goes to this question of what's God's relationship with us, what's God's relationship with the material world and so forth. And I understand that uh, I understand God to be uh, a God who always seeks partnership and participation. That's the fundamental move. And we see it in Genesis 1, where God creates the the heavens and the earth, but calls the land to participate in this bringing forth, right? Like even the, the um, you know, uh, non-animate created order, so to speak, participates in the work of God when God calls it forth. And so... Um, you know, you mentioned that kind of supernatural, natural idea. And I think actually this is a kind of post-enlightenment framework that we use. It's not the one that the the Bible is using. And if you look at the biblical stories, you can see uh, like the parting of the Red Sea, right? This is the, the grand kind of first big miracle of of the people of God in the, in the Christian scripture. And if you look at, if you actually read the account, God says to Moses, okay, stretch out your hand first of all, and then the sea will be parted. And so Moses stretches out his hand and the sea is parted because, as the text says, a wind blows all night and it pushes back the sea. So in that account, God has involved Moses. He has involved, uh, you know, the, the natural order of things. There is no, there's no um, moment in the text where it says, and then God suspended the laws of nature and of, of everything and did something entirely different. What it's actually saying is that all of these things um, are part of God's good creation. And when they are working in their proper way, then they fulfill God's purposes, right? And so God is always calling them back into those purposes. He's calling the wind to serve its purpose. He's calling Moses to serve its purpose as being kind of the agent and um, symbolic, you know, actor for God. Um, and, um, you know, so we see that, of course, in, with Peter and John and all this. But I want to point out um, uh, an even earlier biblical story, a story, uh, it's the first story uh, in scripture of redemption. And it kind of forms a, um, a kind of template that the new Testament talks about a lot. And this is the story of the flood and Noah's Ark. And so if you think about what is happening in this account, um, God has looked at humanity and said, okay, this is a failed experiment. This has got to go away. And so God sets out to destroy all, all life. And then he sees Noah and he says, okay, here's one exception. Here's one human who has the potential to operate as 
humanity was intended to operate. And so what he does is he calls Noah to construct the largest technological artifact that the ancient world could imagine, right? Mm -hmm. And so Noah spends however much time, you know, building this ark, right? Building this giant existential spaceship, essentially, you know, from if you're in, if you're in the ancient world, this is how you think about this. And what happens is that all the animals are brought to Noah just as God brought the animals to Adam to name, right? God brings the animals to Noah to take care of. And so the the ark is huge. Um, it's, it's made so that humanity, technology, um, and God can work together to cultivate and protect the life of the world. And at the end of this, God seals the the ark closed, kind of putting his stamp of approval on the, the process. And when the ark is opened, um, God reiterates the blessing to humanity. He says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Um, this is your job. This is what you're doing. This is what humanity is supposed to look like in partnership with God, is doing these sorts of giant <laughs> technological projects to help cultivate the life of the world. And so I, I think we need to be really careful that we don't exclude part of God's created order and part of what it is to be human in the process of saying we want to affirm and praise the work of God, because God is always at work, and God chooses to work through um, many different, uh, various, diverse means. That's wild. You know, I don't think a lot of people would consider as they think back to Sunday school and the flannel graphs, they wouldn't necessarily think of the ark as a piece of technology, but it certainly was. Right. I mean, all all technology is is the way that we manipulate or interact with the nature around us to create new materials, to use tools, to improve the human condition, to perhaps in this case, right, like be an agent for the, the future restoration of creation. If I were, though, to bring up a couple questions or critiques, I think about even that story. I have to, it feels like I have like this Nephilim quota that I always bring up the Nephilim in every episode. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone, this is like the running joke. I guess it's coming up yeah. again. <laughs> but maybe like a counter to that, though, is like simultaneously, you also see uh, in Genesis 6 there, you see this very cryptic text without unpacking it all, where, you know, the Genesis 6 tells us that the sons of God saw the daughters of women were beautiful and yada, yada, yada for um, those that have kids listening to this program. You know, there's some stuff going on there that is up for debate. And then it created the act of that seemingly demonic as many people like uh, Justin Martyr would look back and look at that and go, there's a, a demonic uh, demonic union that produced something that was unnatural in the world right? These giants, the Nephilim. Um, when I think of that, and then I also think of the Tower of Babel, right? What's the difference between like an unholy union of something that is unnatural or against God's intentions for reality and, and, and something like the Ark, which was part of his redemptive plan? How are people supposed to be able to sift through those because there, there clearly is. There must be a sifting through. Not everything that we use technology for in the world is good. Uh, how do we name that thing as good? How do we discern between whether or not we're building something that's Babel or whether or not we're building something that's an ark? 
Yeah. Well, so my my first thing would be to say that the story actually tells us in each case what's going on and where the the good and the bad play out. I don't think we have to guess, um, although it's not always obvious to our kind of modern uh, ears, kind of what's what's really at stake. Um, so we are told the reason that the um, God set out to destroy the earth is because humanity was filled with violence. Um, but um, moving to the Tower of Babel story, which happens, so you're, you've kind of highlighted the bookends of the Noah's Ark story, right? right? So we see in Noah's Ark, we see humanity operating as God intended. Now, the first thing that happens when Noah comes out of the Ark is, again, God says, you know, be full, fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, right? That was the original commission to humanity. Continues that dominion mandate, as it's sometimes yeah. referred to, right? Yeah, and that, and I, I, I don't love the, the uh, yeah. phrase dom- yes, dominion, yes, but, but I get you're it. Yeah. exactly right. That's the <laughs> that's the mission is for them to fill the earth and to cultivate life, right? Uh, to exercise their their role in the the entire created order. And the first thing that that happens after this is that uh, a bunch of humans, as they're starting to disperse, say, "Wait a second, we don't want to be dispersed across the face of the whole earth." They say this very explicitly, lest we be dis- scattered across the earth. Instead, let's build a city with a tower in the heavens that will basically be the talk of everyone and no one will ever want to leave. This is their account of it. And if you look at that uh, account, they build the city so that they will not be distributed across the face of the earth. God looks at it and says, okay. Um, you know, I've made them powerful enough to do this. This plan of theirs will succeed. Um, and so I'm going to introduce an antidote to um, their plan to not be distributed across the face of the earth, which is that I'm going to introduce diversity. I'm going to introduce multiple languages. And that diversity is going to make sure that instead of kind of coming together in giant uh, tyrannical hierarchies of societies that never move and never change and never expand and never explore new things, um, that they're going to go back to exploring. And that's exactly what the text says at the ha- at the end. God introduces diversity. It causes, um, it causes them to go back to filling the entire earth as God intended. So I see it very clearly. God told them to do something. Here's your mission. Here's what you're supposed to do. They said, we don't want to do this. We've got an idea for how we can use our technology to do something other than this. And God says, Okay, God doesn't even come in and destroy their work or, you know, or condemn towers. We have tower, plenty of towers now. Um, he, instead, God says, okay, I've got to keep humanity moving. I'm going to introduce diversity as that. And so the, the Tower of Babel story is actually um, a prequel to the Pentecost story. Mm-hmm. And on the day of Pentecost, you see this kind of... Um, uh, you know, part of what was introduced at Babel was the fact that people couldn't really work together anymore, right? With this, across this diversity of languages, they couldn't really cooperate. And so in Pentecost, you see God bringing back the ability for humanity to communicate between various languages. They're able to speak to all the different languages of the world and cooperate, not by erasing that diversity that God introduced, but by actually integrating it and cooperating across it, right? They're able to translate. They're not, or it's not the erasure of all these languages and all this diversity, it's cooperation between them. So I think what we see is that, um, 
you know, humanity can take its technology and use it to do, you know, anti-God plans, um, you know, and for a while they can maybe keep those going. But God will ultimately call us back to the work that he's always set out for us to do and even help us to overcome some of the challenges that we've introduced in the process. Hmm. Wow. So that's a great, I mean, I think that's a really helpful, um, perhaps metaphor for what distinguishes your vision as a Christian for any sort of project that we might call transhumanism from other intentions uh, for the transhumanist project. I'm not alone, perhaps, in my initial gut suspicion of it first, right? Uh, I don't know if you've read uh, C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy at all. But in that hideous strength, Lewis seems to give a pretty scathing rebuke of what we could call transhumanism. I don't think that term was actually around when Lewis was writing that back in, I think it was like 43, 1943. But in this book, for those that aren't familiar with it, uh, there's this evil conspiratorial organization bent on world domination through technological advancement. And this this group, though, doesn't sell it as world domination. In fact, they even use like... Christian religious language, some of the some of the members of this NICE organization, uh, they sell it as the perfection of the human species through the eventual migration of human minds out of the limitations of human flesh and blood bodies. Was C.S. Lewis prophetic in his concern about this way back in 43, or do you think his concerns were misguided? Uh, I think his concerns were um, were on track. Um, I think um, I don't think he was quite prophetic. I think he knew people who were saying things a lot like that. And you know, he's presenting a caricature um, in in a lot of ways. But um, but he absolutely knew that people were thinking about um, you know how to kind of drive the evolution of humanity forward and how to kind of use. Um, uh, Christian or religious language to kind of support that work. The, um, he had already seen so much that had happened when um, Christians were kind of struggling with the early questions around evolution, right? Like, so evolution um, all of a sudden became this compelling scientific theory, and people are trying to say, okay, well, what do we do with this? And one of the first things people said was, what. I guess that means we need to drive our own evolution and maybe that means we need to, you know, decide what is the fit version of humans versus, you know, so like the eugenics movements of his era too. Yeah. He experienced really, really dystopian things that came out of that. Right. And it's, um, and it's not because evolution itself is a, um, uh, you know, like this this theory that compels us to those things. It's that as humans try to struggle with, you know, w- the possibilities of our natural world and understanding what kind of world we live in, um, a lot of the ways that we frame those conversations and a lot of the attempt to come up with a moral vision is really flawed or broken. Um, and so... C.S. Lewis, I think, was addressing some real trends he saw in the the world around him. And as I would say, I would describe it, I think what he was doing is trying to offer his own version of transhumanism. And if you read, um, you know, the Space Trilogy, the Chronicles of Narnia, really, like like a friend of mine um, 
said, you know, the road to transhumanism lies through Narnia. Narnia is the uh, prime vision of, I think, in a lot of ways, a Christian transhumanism. Um, and so those those terms weren't being used then by by Lewis in either case, but he's recognizing a negative sort of transhumanism, and he's trying to articulate what a Christian version would look like. And he talks about this kind of you know situation of us walking around in the world and seeing you know the the cab driver and the you know the baker and all this kind of stuff. And he says these are not just average normal humans. Each one of them is becoming something so glorious you would be tempted to fall down and worship or so demonic you would recoil in horror that's what we are in uh god's kind of created order per lewis right the god intends for us to develop in these ways and god wants us to develop towards the good and not towards the evil okay so maybe you could help for some people that aren't i mean we're, we're using the the categories of transhumanism i think we've spoken pretty broadly in philosophical theological terms but maybe we could flesh out some examples of some things that you could see happening in the next perhaps in our lifetime and i'd be curious how would you be able to as you explore these very likely scenarios for humanity for creation uh, is there a way that you're able to say, this is a line, you know, this is the threshold. Once you cross over this line, we are now heading more towards Babel instead of an arc. I think for a lot of people, the, the question that arises when they start thinking about things like the incorporation of technology into their own body or even doing things like, um, like going in and doing um, actual changes to genetic code to either eliminate diseases or perhaps to create a race of super soldier babies, right? That people hear that sort of stuff and they go, the question that we I'm wrestling with is what does it mean to be a human? And as we look at maybe some specific things that you can see as someone really invested in this, this world, how, as you look at those specific things, how, where's the line that you go, ah, this is crossing over too far or it needs to be redirected um, just talk us through maybe some of the things that you see on the horizon and how you use theology, Christian theology, to navigate whether or not this needs to get steered in a new direction or whether it even needs to be halted in some way. Right. Yeah, so one of the big things that people uh, talk about is AI, right? So AI is um, all around us. Um, it's, um, you know, it's, it's in our social media. It's in our conversations that happen online. Um, now it's driving our cars. It's doing all kinds of different things. Um, but we have these questions of, you know, where does it go? What responsibility do we have to it? And you have people like Elon Musk, who I would call a secular transhumanist, who is looking at these kinds of things that in many ways he is helping to advance. Um, and he's also saying, um, we are summoning the demons. Like this is his language to yeah, use because, yeah. because he realizes this is a huge dangerous thing to do. Um, it doesn't, it's, there's a huge potential, uh, for good. Um, but also huge potential for destruction. And, uh, in his, um, interview he did with on the Joe Rogan podcast, uh, there was like this crazy moment where Joe Rogan asked him about this and he, paused for like 15 seconds and he was like i tried to warn them and and, it kind of, <laughs> and joe rogan kind of freaks out he's like this is like some 
you know, moment in a movie. It's like right before exactly. everything, you know, goes all the down. dystopian movies that we're yeah. afraid of, right? That's right. <laughs> and um, so there's real concern coming from um, everyone involved in this, uh, particularly in the secular world. And so as a Christian, I actually have a, a different way to approach that question. I can say, well, um, this is a dangerous thing, right? It is dangerous to bring into existence a being that might have its own agency, um, its own desires and its own, you know, impulses. So what do we do with that? Um, and for me, uh, well, first of all, it's the same question that God dealt with in in creating us, right? All of a sudden, there's a being in the world with its own agency that sets out to do its own things. And, you know, if you read through Genesis from that framework, you can kind of see some of the ways that it goes wrong, right? Like, you can see all the AI risk that people are concerned about. It comes when you bring into existence another kind of being. And um, it's also the same question we face every time we bring a child into the world, because every child that comes into the world could either be the next Hitler or, the, you know, invent the next cure for cancer or whatever, right? So um, so we're always facing that risk, and I think there is an answer to what we do with that risk in the Christian faith, which is we say, okay, if we are going to bring um, a new creature into existence, whether we're parents or whatever— then our responsibility is to enter into relationship with it, right? Our responsibility is to bring it into a, a world of loving relationships. That's what we do. That's how we try to make children not be the next Hitler, but to be, you know, a good a force for good. And you see this contrasted with what a lot of secular scientists are suggesting where we trap and enslave our AI to keep it from doing something bad. And I'm like, this is, this is exactly how you get a dystopia, right? <laughs> you start a creature off in the world, knowing that the people who have created it are there to like trap it and enslave it and so forth. I think that's the anti-Christian um, answer to this challenge. The Christian answer is to say, to whatever extent we bring creatures into the world, we have a responsibility to enter into relationship with them, um, just as our creator entered into relationship with us. Um, and so we can talk about that more and a lot of other possibilities, but that's kind of one example of where I think Christians actually have something really significant to offer a real conversation that's happening now. Do you think then that, are you suggesting that AI has moral agency? Like, are they in some way, can do they just mimic sentience or can AI actually be something that you think is in the same category as a human? Now, you know, we've been wrestling with, been going, actually going through, I've got it right here in my desk, uh, in, 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 search of, in Search of the Soul, okay, by Joel Green, Stuart L. Palmer. And of course, this idea of the soul that we frequently talk about is more than likely, a, you know, as many Christians understand it, is imported from Greek philosophy, these categories. But there is, going even back to the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament, there is this breath of God. There's this animating element. People have been wrestling with what is that thing? There is something, unless you're a materialist, there there is some sort of non-reducible 
essence to the human being that we would say this is what makes them image bearers. They have the breath of God. You know, a guy like David Bentley Hart, for example, it lays out his sort of framework for understanding consciousness is, is we are participating in a limited sense in God's consciousness of himself. You know, so if we're going to use technological language, and I've talked about this before in other podcasts, that that maybe in a sense that we as our individual local conscious machines, if you will, maybe I shouldn't use that word, are, are, are plugged into the cloud. And, and yeah. there is something about us that isn't reducible to just the hardware itself. Yeah. Are you suggesting that AI has and will be able to have Whatever this mysterious thing is, whether we want to call it consciousness or spirit or, you know, Eastern traditions might call it chi, right? There's, they're all searching for what seems to be the thing that's there in the human being. And then when they look at that, the dead body of someone, they go, that thing's gone, right? Yeah. Are you suggesting like AI and machines have that same thing or can have that same thing? Yeah, so I think we I think we know that they can. We don't know how. Uh, we know that they don't have it right now. Um, the reason why I say we know that they can is because we are carbon-based life forms that somehow exhibit this, right? We, uh, you know, in the Genesis story, we are made out of dirt, um, and somehow dirt becomes infused with this immaterial, conscious, um, spiritual, you know, soul type force. Um, and we don't know how that happens. Um, but we know that it, do, it does, it did. Um, and then we pass that on, right? When, when, you know, we have kids, we, you know, we know that we are, uh, bringing, you know, in some sense into existence, a new insold or, you know, spiritual being, um, through a physical process that we understand pretty well at the genetic level. Um, so we know that there are physical processes that can lead to the instantiation of new spiritual creatures. We don't know the full extent of what those processes are. And the um, in AI discussions, um, they talk about this as the difference between artificial intelligence and artificial general intelligence. And okay. so general intelligence, AGI, is um, intelligence that's like us, that's able to be creative, that's able to solve problems, that has its own kind of desires and impulses and and so forth. Um, and so they, that's a huge philosophical question. It, you know, what leads from AI as we experience it now, narrow AI, to uh, general AI, to artificial general intelligence. Um, that has this capacity for creative and relational thought. And, um, and we don't know. And it, it, you know, some popular scenarios are like, well, it just reaches a certain level of complexity. And then maybe like one day Google wakes up, you know, like something yeah. like this, you know, um, or, you know, all of a sudden you get this worldwide network turn into a, a conscious being. And that's a possibility. Um, because I don't know, you know, like I don't, I don't know what happens and I don't know how we get there. So I don't want to rule that out. Um, because I don't have a Christian theological philosophical way to kind of parse that out. I suspect it's not that simple. Um, and physicists like David Deutsch, who kind of pioneered quantum computing actually talks about this. He says, you know, 
the we won't really be able to do this. We won't really be able to create a new kind of general intelligence, um, creative being until we understand philosophically how our own minds work. And I I'm I'm partial to that view. I think there's there might be something to that, but. If that's the case, there might there might come a day where we do understand something about how our own minds work, and then we are able to kind of give that to our own creations. It's so fascinating because, I mean, it's clear that without material bodies that have a mind, we don't have consciousness, right? I mean, I, there was a point in which you and I, unless we were to go, you know, Plato or even... <laughs> You know, right. Mormons, for example, believe, you know, the soul is already in a pre-existent state and that the spirit babies, you know, essentially enter yeah. into human bodies. But I, I think if we deny that, if we deny that there's a certain point in time in which, <clears throat> pardon me, in which you or I, we enter into being and become conscious that that actually happens through material processes too. There's... It, but I think the question then becomes, all right, it's clear that there's a union of matter and spirit, uh, this design in which consciousness endows material structures of mind and matter, flesh and bone. If you were to reduce certain parts of that, do you then, is there a spot, you know, the philosophers of restless, is there a spot though where like you cut out this section of the brain and now you no longer have a conscious being is it simply just we have parts and as you're saying, all we need to do is get to the point where we have enough complexity of these parts and you build these up together like Legos of consciousness and now all of a sudden now we have consciousness. Is that, is that a capability for a machine? I know you're saying you don't have an answer to that, but I think it's really fascinating because the question or concern in dystopian movies and sci-fi, it's a question that I think Christians have to wrestle with is what is it that makes you an image bearer? Yeah. What is it that makes you a human from a machine? Uh, I think even questions come up like my wife and I, we go, all right, we've got a, you know, we've got a little Alexa, whatever the circular one is. I'm not making a plug for it. But, Echo Dot. And Echo Dot. Yes, yes. yes. I'll, I'll gladly accept your sponsorship, Amazon, if you want to fund this <laughs> podcast. If you got some money to spare, I'm sure you do. I'll take it. Uh, you know, we got Alexa in the house, and there's certain times where we go, you know, you shouldn't talk to Alexa like that. Right. <laughs> you know, hey, son, you know, you, you probably shouldn't call Alexa stupid. But why is that? I know, on one one hand, we're we're concerned about the the moral formation that speaking to something that has this personified name might produce in them. But on another level, I think of those videos that come out from whatever the corporation is that is always Boston Dynamics. Boston Dynamic. Yeah. yeah. And years ago, someone had said it to uh, them doing those. Again, my gut reaction is cruel experiments, you know, right. knocking over these robots. And somebody said it to like Sarah McLaughlin's I will remember you, <laughs> you know, or something. Right. Whatever the, the the song is that she uses for all of her, um, you know, ethical treatment of animals. And you right. go, what is it about my gut reaction? I've played those in classes before, and girls in the class have gone, oh, that's terrible when they knock over that robot walking. Right. Is it terrible, or is it just like, because what's the difference between that and me recycling my Coke can and, and crushing it? Right. Yeah, that's a it's a great question. And I think 
um, I think it goes to something that is uh, intrinsic to human nature and to who we are, and I would see this theologically as created in the image of God. We are one of the only species um, that actually adopts other species into our families. So we take, you know, pets, right? And what we're doing from Which a Which is really weird. Right. <laughs> and and I'm not a pet person, but I... <laughs> Nor am I. <laughs> this is um, an incredible thing that we do. We take uh, animals of other species, we bring them into our family, we treat them as family members, right? And I think there is um, there's something we're doing there uh, that is actually indicative of who we are as you know, in the image of a relational creator. Um, it is that we then take that relationship and extend it to the rest of the created order. That's our kind of role. In N.T. Wright's terminology, we are a mirror reflecting God out to creation and also reflecting creation back to God. So we are we are creating that kind of relationship um, between the uh, non-human created order and uh, the the divine creator. That is our our kind of place in e- existence. We are the the conduit of that. And so um, when we bring in a dog or a cat or whatever into our family and we I- extend a relationship to it, we understand that it's not the same relationship we have with another human, and yet it is a relationship that is part now part of our family, part of our kind of relational network. And I think we, um, we can and will do that with, um, with robots, whether they're robot dogs or robots that look like, you know, um, other kinds of creatures or whatever, where we, in the Boston dynamics videos, these are, you know, dogs created to, (laughs) to robotic dogs created to do certain things. But what they, what we're seeing in them is an expression of intention of desire. They're trying to go through this door. They're trying to carry this thing from place to place. And we respect that. And we respect it even when we know that it's not a, um, it's not a human level desire. It's not even a cat level desire or dog level desire or something like that. But we recognize something in those creatures um, that is like what we have and we affirm it and we respect it and we think it's somewhat disrespectful for someone to stand in the way of that and kick them down or something like that. And that's different than your relationship with your Coke can because we know that your Coke can, at least as far as we can tell, doesn't have any real desires, right? But um, with robots, with other kind of creatures, we are putting desires into them. Um, we are asking them to do jobs for us. And we have an intrinsic kind of spiritual, emotional response that says we should respect their role in the created order, especially as we've helped to bring it into existence. Wow. Okay. So uh, initial response, I, I think about um, – think about – in the very potential lifetime of us or our kids that robot companionship is going to be more of a thing. It's already happening in places like Japan where they're using robots as companions for people in hospice or in elderly care. I wonder as we see this happen more and more in our lifetime, do we need to have a sort of bill of rights for, for robots. Is there is there an ethical instruction that Christian churches are going to have to, as one of the primary vehicles for ethical instruction on Sunday morning, you know, you're 
you're going to be sitting in church in the near future and hearing sermons about not only loving your neighbor, but loving, you know, your R2-D2. Right. <laughs> Do you see that as a real possibility in our lifetime? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and what we what we need to, to be aware of kind of is navigating this kind of relational dynamic. Like we, we recognize um, I, uh, that when, you know, people have pets, that that's um, usually a good and productive thing. But there are kinds of relationships that they could have with their pets that are not good, not healthy, not productive. Because they're not the the animal is does not have the capacity for the same kind of relationship that you have with another human, and so you have to respect that. And it's the same way between a parent and a child, right? There are we recognize these kind of gradations of different types of relationships, and so we affirm the goodness of relationship with a wide variety of creature, but we also uh, recognize and insist on. Um, the respect for kind of the differences in it, that creature's own relational capacity. Um, and so when we talk about, you know, uh, situations where we're using, um, we're using robots to help comfort elderly people and so forth, um, and um, all the way to people are getting married to, you know, artificial creatures and things like that, which is happening in some places, um, the question there is not, is this good or bad? It's our, is this particular instantiation respecting the actual relationship there? And so, you know, we give kids dolls to play with, right? And they have right. relationships with dolls. These are artificial creatures that they're having relationships with. We recognize an appropriate kind of relationship that can happen there. We don't think we're corrupting our children when we do that. Um, but we also recognize that there are inappropriate relationships that someone could have with dolls, right? And yeah. that Lars, um, Lars and the Real Girl. I don't know if you ever saw that. Now, now yeah. I'm thinking. Now I'm going to put that in my transhumanist movie category. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's absolutely right. And and um, we do see people developing relationships with um, with dolls or with other kinds of animatronic creatures. You know. Um, where maybe they they feel like they're in a relationship with it, they're marrying it, something like that. Um, I think we would generally recognize that's not an appropriate relationship because that that is not an actual um, equitable relationship. There, you know, the 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 creature is not responding in the same way, and so you're putting things on it that it is not able to bear. Well, couldn't it also be too that we have to discuss what are the you know what's the telos for human beings and what is the end that human beings are called to participate in. And we, you know, one way of thinking about what's good and right in the world is whether or not we're participating with God's telos for us, that end. And so the real question, and I'll just give parents that maybe listen to this with their kids around, here's just a quick warning. You might want to pause this, get your kids out of the room for a second or do earmuffs. All right, you got them? Okay. There is even, right, this movement of, of sex robots, yeah. right, um, that some people are optimistic are going to end up, you know, replacing or eliminating a huge market for human sexual slavery. And the question then becomes, okay, well, is that actually better? Well, in one regard, maybe it is because you don't have humans being exploited, being sold into slavery, having acts against their own will. But in another regard, the question still is, 
is that good for the human that's in that sort of uh, I don't remember if this was a, a Black Mirror episode or someplace else. I, I remember vaguely seeing some show where this guy had visited a essentially a robot brothel, right? Um, probably thinking of humans. Uh, humans, yeah. I, I tried maybe the first couple episodes of that and lost interest in it, but um, there was, and it brings up a real question, not just for the uh, the rights of whatever this machine is, but is this wrong because it's against the telos of what you were designed to do, which I think really might ultimately be the question behind transhumanism. Are there places for the human being to, you've brought up AI, but maybe you could bring up a couple other things that you could see happening in our lifetime, which may fundamentally change like the human experience, like what it means to be human in a way that goes, is that against our telos? Is that against the way, because if we're fine with things like LASIK or a pacemaker, someone loses a limb because of a roadside bomb in Iraq, we give them a prosthetic limb, we go, there's nothing wrong with that. But is there a point in which a human then moves into aggressing against God's intention for the human experience? Do you see yeah. some things like that in our lifetime, which are causing you to question, I don't know if moving into this area is good? Yeah, so um, I think one of the big uh, things that's happening right now is um, uh, genetic engineering. And so there are two types of genetic engineering that um, that are relevant. One is um, is just the kind of modification of your genome, right? And the other is called human germline manipulation. And this would be the manipulation of your children's genomes. So um, you know, it's totally possible to do genetic editing of, of, of my body so that I express certain genes in a different way, or we replace a malfunctioning gene with a different one or something like that. And then when I have kids, that doesn't change anything about them, right? But it's also possible to do germline modification where now for all future generations, that something will have changed. Hmm. And um, the first, uh, so the, the international scientific community has had a kind of ban on germline modification, um, a temporary ban, but a ban on germline modification for a while now, um, where they said, okay, it's fine to do your own, kind of edit your own genome, your own body, but we can't introduce this into the human species, you know, until we've had to the ability to think about where this is leading. And this actually, that that uh, that was uh, that, that ban, so to speak, was transgressed. Uh, I think last year um, by um, a, a scientist in China. Oh, shocker! Edited, yeah, <laughs> that seems right. like that's 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 the problem when I hear these sorts of discussions. It's like, oh, right, we're going to set this ethical standard, and it always comes up. Well, they already did it in China, and then it right. becomes like an arms race, right? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And in this case, I think China was not on board. They didn't know, but this was, he was able to do this. And, and it's, it's a question, uh, China and some other places have a very much more aggressive interest in pursuing some of these things than certainly in the U S. 
Um, and so, yeah, it does become a question of arms race in a lot of ways. And what happened in this specific case was here we have a scientist who grew up in a community in which um, something like 40 percent of the children in the community were impacted by the fact that their parents had HIV. And so he wanted to change the genome to make the um, children more resistant to HIV in order that they could have relationships with their parents, you know, and less like less interference, right? And so he did some gene editing that um, may, you know, a gene that had been identified as having this resistance to HIV infection. He gave these two young girls, um, these uh, these babies, uh, when they were born, they had this. Um, editing done and so that they would be they would grow up resistant to HIV and um, that then this would pass on to their children and their children's children and it was a huge controversy but it was also this question of like well was that an ethical application of this right because he had a good intent yeah. right yeah um, and it was about addressing human suffering and enhancing human relationship and I think um, uh, so you know, there's all kinds of questions there, but I think we could say, okay, that that is uh, both a good and a dangerous thing. Um, it is good because it's intending to improve human life, improve human relationship, uh, address human suffering. It's dangerous because the way in which it was gone about and the kind of like research that went ahead of time into what the ramifications of this were like it, it, we just didn't have sufficient knowledge about what was actually going to happen and how this was going to play out and so there are a lot of like ethical kind of boundaries that were crossed in that process um so you know i think i think um it's certainly there's certainly incredible opportunities for doing good there, but there are also incredible opportunities for introducing all kinds of dangers, problems, risks. Um, and that's just like the first little thing, right? The next one would be, okay, uh, what if we want to make, you know, a, um, uh, you know, somebody who's like a, a world champion Olympian, right? right. You know, mm -hmm. like we we can probably identify the genes that would make you a better runner and use those, you know. And then we get into questions of like, okay, so what are we optimizing our children for in this case, right? Are we trying to make kids who are the, um, you know, the, the leading athletes or are we trying to um, make kids who are not going to suffer from these diseases or what are we doing? Like, where are we going with this? And that would be the, the way that I would come down on those ethical questions is like, wh where are we going? Does that, as you said, point to the telos that God has for us? Um, or is it maybe optimizing something that's a little more superficial, a little less meaningful, a little less positive, um, and ultimately, uh, not really a redemptive purpose or application of those technologies. It seems like, if I'm going to use maybe some like ethical terminology, it seems like is the only way to evaluate this really on consequentialist terms. There's not really a way to have a principled or deontological ethical commitment to a certain thing in this because it seems like we've already crossed over that line once we start doing things like surgery even, right? I think about, you know, my son has had pretty severe asthma and a list of really dangerous food allergies. And if there was a doctor that came to me and said, hey, 
we've this is a very real possibility it's more than likely here's the percentage if we don't go in and edit his genome it's going to happen mm-hmm. hundred times i'm going make the change right because this and that's you know the kids suffer far more than that but even the amount of suffering he's had to endure from those afflictions right 100 times out of 100 times and I just go make make the switch right make the i picture sometimes you know i come from a, a charismatic pentecostal background which um some people and it, and rightly can accuse of having like an overrealized eschatology mm. but one of the things i think about even when i pray for a situation or i pray i think about someone in physical harm or impairment is what if jesus of nazareth the, the real historical jesus of nazareth were to walk into the room what would be different and i picture kids in suffering whether it's been the times we've been in the hospital or icu with our own our own son and we see these bald-headed children that are going through chemotherapy at, in kindergarten and i go if jesus walks in the room i can't picture any other scenario than that that child being set free um, if I'm able to do that, should I do that? Mm-hmm. It, it's hard to say no, though there are some that would go, I think that's too much uh, of playing God. There doesn't seem to be that there, if you take a principled stance, like, you know, I'm just struggling to find, because I, I like to have a principled ethical stance towards things. I like having a deontological one because I don't think I'm smart enough to evaluate all the consequences. Right, And maybe that's even some of the concern in the scientific community, and I've heard people talk about this, that once we start doing gene editing, um, we don't know perhaps by editing the human genome or the DNA sequence to produce this result, whether or not long-term it could produce other things. Like, for example, with vaccine, uh, not vaccinations, but with um, antibiotics, right? Uh, we probably didn't know when we were giving out antibiotics from everything from ear infection to strep throat that there's now viruses <clears throat> that are developing, <clears throat> excuse me, that are resistant to antibiotics. Uh, the only way we can evaluate whether or not it's good to do or not seems to be with a consequentialist approach. It, it seems really hard in this category to come up with a principled line of demarcation to go, this is right, this is wrong. All right, let's, if you don't mind, real quick, let's, we've pretty heavy conversation. Let's switch to something fun here as we maybe wrap up in the last couple of questions here. Okay, I'm going to throw out some names here, some fictional names. You tell me if they're human or machine, okay? Okay. Darth Vader. <laughs> so, okay, so I can get it really complicated in this. My, my first uh, instinct <laughs> is say, to say human, but if you, um, Actually, think about it. The Star Wars uh, universe—they're in a galaxy far away, so they are not biologically <laughs> related to the human species as we know it. Um, so then, that becomes a question of: Yeah, do you have to be connected uh, to the human species to be human? <laughs> so he's something. He—I <laughs> would say human, uh, but maybe in a different—you know—in the Star Wars language, that might be a different thing. <laughs> There's a threshold, though, that you go, even in the story, part of the redemptive arc for the character is that there's like still a spark of humanity left in him. Yes. in him. Even though I think Obi-Wan warns him he's more machine than human now, twisted and evil, right? Right, yeah. But you get, he's a human, but is 3PO a human? Mm. Yeah, so I would say no. Um, uh, C-3PO looks like he, he appears to be... Um, 
a non-human person. And I don't know if that's the case, but that's what it seems like he, he presents in the, in the um, stories is he has no kind of human mind or consciousness, but he is nevertheless a person who has creative agency, right? Um, and so that's kind of a distinction um, that's made in a lot of sci-fi is between persons um, who have some kind of, uh, they have the same kind of creative relational nature as we do, but they don't have any kind of like historic connection to the human form or anything like that. And maybe their mind works in a different way. And so okay. that's what C-3PO seems to be. The, the ethical question that comes up, right, is, you know, they obviously treat him throughout the films as as being someone that has the rights of a sentient being, right? Whereas ships, you know, there's no problem blowing up a TIE fighter, right? right? Um, but you would really feel an emotional pain. Is it just because he bears human-like qualities that we feel, maybe this is just hardwired into our evolutionary programming where we're supposed to feel these sorts of sympathetic feelings towards things that look like us or act like us in specific ways, but non-human-looking machines, we don't seem to have that same, like nobody cried when the Death Star was blown up, right? I mean, it was, right. unless you really think about all the people that were working in there and whether or not this was a terrorist act, but right. we, won't get in, we won't get into that. There, there does seem to be perhaps, is this just on a human biological evolutionary hardwiring that we go, well, the things that look like this, we've just been wired and it's just tricking us or should we actually, has this been informed by a Christian theological story that goes, no, 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 these, these things, not just because they're human, but everything in the created order has some sort of value. Um, I wonder how we differentiate between the toaster, the refrigerator, C-3PO, and Darth Vader, right. and how we treat them. Yeah, so this this shows up uh, to jump back. Um, this shows up in the Narnia stories as well, right? right so right. you have beavers and fawns and all kinds of creatures that are also persons, right? And they're not human persons. They don't have any kind of shared history with the human species, but they are persons, and they do deserve that kind of relational respect. But there is a, a point in the Narnia series where many of those animals have lost their personhood and reverted to, so you know we might say to an animal uh, you know an animal way of being and so um, in the Narnian universe uh, there is this distinction and it's not about the shape or the form of the creature it's about you know do they have these spiritual qualities do they have the qualities of personhood and particularly in Narnia it's about language right? Do the, are they able to communicate with us in the same way that we're able to communicate with each other? And I think that's, um, in uh, the a AI world, Alan Turing was a huge um, uh, scientist who kind of made a huge, huge mark in this field. Um, and he proposed uh, the Turing test. Um, yeah. uh, and the movie Imitation Game kind of references this a little bit. But it's basically, you sit there and talk with... Um, the, the AI, and um, the question is, does it manifest to you, does your spirit essentially say, yes, I'm talking to another relational being who has that same kind of relational um, awareness that I do? And ultimately, that's all we do with each other, right? Like, I, that's why I'm not a solipsist is because 
I feel in my spirit that when I'm talking to you, that I'm talking to another person. Even um, mediated through these machines right now. Right. Absolutely. Um, and that could be true regardless of what I was seeing on the other end. I could say, wait, I think I'm talking to another person. And there is no way to prove that, right? I can't prove that I'm not just the only mind in the universe and everybody else is not just some kind. But I, but I choose to believe that I have faith in the fact that when I'm talking with another person, that my mind, my spirit, my soul recognizes that and can affirm it. Um, even through through technological means, either, even through other forms that I may not recognize. So do you think we should be morally repulsed when we, let's, we'll stick in the Star Wars universe, right? Uh-huh. You've, got, you've got three categories of soldiers that you see the Empire employ. You've got droids, you've got a droid army, you've got a clone army, and then after the clone army and the droid army fails, then you actually have human, well, you know, human-like agents that are neither clone nor robot. Part of that, I suspect, I wonder, was like George Lucas when he was making the prequels going, this should be for kids, and perhaps the more kid-friendly thing to do is have these massive wars, not with humans being killed, but with robots being killed, with droids being killed. And then, you know, we can have a we can have a clone army because clones are not humans and all those things can be killed. You can even have a Clone Wars TV show that's geared for kids right. where all the clones can die, but it's not humans dying. Are you suggesting, though, that like we should feel the same way about all of them? If this was not, again, it's fictional, but if we're doing this right. in, in the real world, where should we feel as awful if we get to the point where robots are actually going and, you know, when a drone is knocked down out of the sky, maybe right. it doesn't possess that same sort of uh, list of characteristics that you're looking for for personhood, but is there a point where we go, yeah, if we sent robots off to war, we should feel as bad about that as if a human dies in war? Um, well, I think I, I think not robots as we currently understand them, right? Okay. So uh, if the Boston Dynamics uh, robots go off into war and are, are blown up or something like that, I don't think we grieve for them in the same way. I, I said earlier that we respect, you know, we respect their kind of desire, which we affirm. We have a feeling about it, but we also recognize that these are not conscious um, agents who are able to communicate with us. And I think George Lucas was trying to remove that sort of personhood, right? The mask, right, right. like, mm-hmm. you know, to convince us that these are not real persons. Um, and so, He's, he's playing with these categories, but I think he, his intent is for us to think that they are not persons. They are purely, um, you know, robotic machines. They don't suffer that, you know, they don't even suffer as, as creatures do. C3PO, I, he's kind of an edge case because I think he is, he does manifest as a person and yet they treat him, you know, as a servant, right? They don't, right. they don't, uh, uh, they don't give him the same kinds of um, rights and respects that they give to other other persons within that world. And I think that's th- there's kind of a question of of um, what the you know, what we're supposed to think there that his real personhood is. And I think it's ambiguous um, from with. But if he world. dies, you know, if they killed him off in episode nine, Lord knows that theater is going to be filled with people crying, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and you, you talked about the ships, but there is, uh, what was it, the um, Han Solo uh, movie that came out recently where yeah. um, 
where there is a ship. There is an uh, a ship who has like uh, who falls in love, right? And oh yeah, it's the, like one of the robot. It's another robot companion to um, yeah. Lan- Lando. You know. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um. So I, yeah, I forget the the precise details, but but um, it's it's that relational component. We you know if they're able to express those kinds of relationships to really have to be able to fall in love to, to all that kind of stuff, then we want to recognize that they are persons who have that kind of same um, intrinsic nature as we do. And we'll absolutely cry about their, their death and, you know, and, and feel their loss if they, you know, unrequited love or whatever, you know, like we Mm -hmm. will feel that Mm -hmm. um, because they are, they're able to communicate. Um, and I think that's, you know, even, uh, we can push that to the edge, like even R2D2, uh, only communicates in, you know, beeps or whatever. Um, but we still recognize that R2D2 is able to express things because the other humans who are there can understand what R2D2 is saying and reflect it to us essentially, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we recognize, oh, you know, R2-D2 is upset right now, has, is having a, you know, an attitude, you know, like whatever. Um, and so, yeah, I think, but, but I think in all those cases, it comes back to communication and the communication of relationship. Um, so anyway. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to go through the rest of this list real quick and we'll have, we'll, let's say. We got uh, through one. Yeah. <laughs> we got through one. Uh, real quick. Data from Star Trek, the next generation. Yeah, Data is a non-human person, right? He is—he doesn't have human uh, characteristics, but he does have personal characteristics. Okay. So he's definitely more than a machine, um, even though he's not from the human species. Okay, RoboCop. Definitely human. <laughs> <laughs> Inspector Gadget. Human, yes. <laughs> I, I was... I, I wondered about his origin story. I don't, yeah, I don't know it either. Yeah. But he is, uh, he's supposed to be Penny's uncle. So I think that makes him human. <laughs> if you, <laughs> if a Christian in the future was debating whether or not to take on the technological capabilities of, uh, of Inspector Gadget, would you instruct them for or against it based on your theological <laughs> convictions? <laughs> Um, Inspector Gadget seems to have very little control over his his uh, machine augmentations, so I probably would not recommend that because that would um, at least his capacity for uh, successfully integrating with that seems a little bit limited. So, okay, the last one: replicants in the Blade Runner series. I think that's a non-human person, right? That's a we we recognize some personhood characteristics, but it's also coming from a non-human uh, origin, uh, so it doesn't share all of our characteristics. Yeah. Okay. Last last question here for you, Mike. Thank you. You've been gracious with your time. It's been a really fun conversation. Yeah. But I do. I'm curious. Uh, and I'm sure it's even coming up in listeners' uh, minds as they're listening to this conversation. How does your transhumanism interact with like your eschatology? Are are you you perhaps suggesting that the God's goal? I'm not saying you are, but I, it'd be interesting to hear your response to this. What if somebody hears this talk and they they go, okay, well maybe the way I should interpret the Christian story is that God is calling us to participate with the natural world around us to create 
technology to create these tools that will expand our life and even get to the point where conceivably, if aside from massive plague, war, getting hit by an asteroid, that sort of stuff, if human technology continues in this trajectory arc, will it be a we get to the point where we can do things like, again, download our minds into robotic immortal bodies that, you know, you can just kind of swap out. Could you extend human capacity through editing of genomes or other, other ways to get to the point where you would never die? Mm -hmm. Are you, could someone listen to this conversation and go, okay, maybe that's what it means when we're going to get a resurrected body. Maybe that's the true Christian hope. What would you say to people that think that? Is that what you think? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, okay, so uh, this goes to a couple different categories here. And um, so I would roll all the way back to the Old Testament and the, the story of a land flowing with milk and honey, right? This was the initial vision of paradise that the people of God were looking for is like a land they could live in where everything would be perfect, right? Everything would be, um, they would be able to sit under their own vine and fig tree and like all, all this kind of stuff, have all these wonderful blessings. And the, I think the narrative of the scripture is to say, okay, how do we get there? You know, how is it that we just go to the land or do we also have to follow the these rules or what is the you know, what is the thing? Now, you could look at that and you could say, well, the way we get there is we, you know, go out and become good farmers. Right. Um, and that but that didn't work. Right. It, it actually did not work. That didn't create the kind of paradise on Earth that the, um, the people of God were looking for. And um you know, with with Moses, you get the you know the idea that the law maybe um, would actually be able to deliver that, and then of course you get through and you realize that none of those things delivered it. Even though these were very physical blessings that people were looking for, the only way to actually get there was to be transformed spiritually. And I think that's the the case that we can look at a lot of these kind of physical blessings that technology might offer. And, um, and they look very similar to the things that are offered in like in Revelation. You see the new Jerusalem coming down. It's technological, it's human, it's biological. Light is streaming out into all the world. There's, uh, you know, it's part of the created order. Um, it, uh, you know, there's, there's immortality, all these things. And you say, how do we get there? Is it an engineering project or is it a spiritual project? Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I would say, Engineering is never left out of it. It's always part of it. The the New Jerusalem, they go out into all the world and they bring in all the glory and honor of the nations. They uh, everything that the nations came up with gets included in the New Jerusalem. So it's part of the process. But that's not how we get there. That's not how we attain that. We it, because as long as we don't have the spiritual in place, our physical stuff will self destruct every every single time. And I think so. The, uh, we can give an, a specific example, um, immortality versus life extension. We can address genetically our life extension issues and maybe, you know, extend the human lifespan beyond our, its current limits. Um, will that make us immortal? No, it will not. Um, cause we can still walk in front of a bus. We can still get hit by, you know, a bomb. We can still fall into a supernova or a black hole. There will always be ways that we can die. The only thing that gives us immortality is being in a relationship with someone who will bring us back 
from death, which is exactly what Jesus says in the Gospels. This is eternal life, to know you and the one you have sent. And I think that's it. The relationship, the spiritual connection with God, that is where all those things um, come from. And they will play out in physical ways in the world around us. But if we don't have that spiritual core, we will never get there. Wow. Thanks, Micah. This has been a super fun conversation. You've given me a lot to chew on. You know, I'm even thinking, you know, we don't have time for today, but my first response is, okay, well, connecting some of the things we've talked about here. Boy, if we get to the point where somehow machines make manifest that thing, which is part of the essential human person, the image-bearing thing, does then salvation get extended to them? Can they have union with God in Christ and be resurrected? There's all sorts of fun things I'm going to be thinking about for quite some time. If people were interested in connecting with you or finding more about your work, maybe they're fascinated, maybe they want to chew on some of these ideas some more. Maybe they even feel like a calling. I think at the very least, even if people disagree with the theology presented today, one of the things I would commend to people is to consider if voices like Micah are not in these arenas, what will be the voices heard? What will be the what will be the spirit that's making manifest in the aesthetic and the laborer the the sort of will we get those sorts of dystopian futures? Is Micah Redding trying to prevent a dystopian future? <laughs> Find out next time. <laughs> you know, so where are some ways maybe people could get connected with you or there's some of the stuff that you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, probably the biggest one for most people is going to be christiantranshumanism.org. That's the website for the Christian Transhumanist Association. And I would point out that we, uh, last uh, fall, we did our first conference. Um, this fall, we're doing our second conference. It's going to be um, bigger and um, uh, hopefully more engaging than ever. Uh, it was a fantastic experience last year, but it's a great way for people to connect kind of in person and discuss some of these ideas. Um, uh, we're on Twitter and, and we have a big kind of Facebook group that's very engaged. Um, if you want to know a little bit more about my kind of how I break things down theologically, micahredding.com is, is my website and I post periodically, um, essays up there that where I'm trying to kind of work through Christian theological ideas. Um, so that's where I would suggest people uh, go. Our, our website, you can get connected with our community, and I think it would be fantastic for people to come out to the conference and really talk about this in an embodied, relational way. Thanks, Micah. I'm going to put all those links in the description uh, of this podcast in the show notes so that you can find those ways of asking maybe follow-up questions or maybe figuring out if there's a way you feel a particular sense of calling in the area of science and technology, and uh, especially as it relates to the human condition, that you might feel a sense that you should have your voice at the table too. So thank you so much, Micah. This has been awesome. I appreciate your time, brother. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I want to thank you guys for listening to today's conversation with Micah Redding. Again, I have all the links in the description to this podcast where you can connect with him and find out more about the Christian Transhumanist Association. I want to thank the supporters on Patreon, those that become part of the Deep Talks Patreon community. And I want to invite you to become a member there. Uh, you can support the work that I'm doing, conversations like these, by getting involved at Patreon. There's a link for that in the description as well. 
There's other ways you can support this podcast. Another way is just by simply leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It's definitely the number one place people are still going to to get their podcasts. I know there's many other platforms uh, that other people are using, especially Android, Google users, etc. But even if you don't use that platform, if you could leave a review, it doesn't have to be five star if you don't think it's worth five star. But that's a way that people can find out about the podcast. The more reviews, the more subscriptions that happen over there, the more likely it is for others to find it. It gets kind of propelled up the up the charts. So doing that is a way of helping other people get connected to the conversations we're having over here. I'm also more than open and I love connecting with people on Twitter. So if you want to connect with me in that way, ask questions, we can just exchange ideas there. That's probably the primary platform I'll do like text back and forth with people on in written communication. That's also in the description to this podcast. Thank you guys. Thank you all. Special thanks to Paul R. This month's uh, Theology 201 subscriber. Thank you, Paul R., for your support. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.